hello everyone and welcome. Um, this is our first of many, hopefully, but this is our collaboration between AEM RSA Social Empower podcast series as well as the AAEM Jedi section um, collaboration for a podcast that we are very excited to bring to you today. Um, I am Jordan. I'm one of the counselors that serve on the Jedi section, and I'll introduce our wonderful guest speaker a little bit later. But I just wanted to welcome you to this AEM RSA Social Empower series, where we are start our first of many episodes on incarcerated individuals and the many social determinants that affect this population and their medical care. This podcast will focus on the health disparities surrounding incarceration. This will be part one of many to follow on medical care of incarcerated patients in the ED, advocacy, and ways to advocate for our patient at discharge. First, I would like to introduce our guest of honor, Dr. Niyogi. Dr. Niyogi completed her MD and PH from Tulane University School of Medicine and School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine. She is an academic hospitalist at UMC in New Orleans, where she teaches medical students and residents. Dr. Nogi serves as an adjunct professor at Tulane School of Public Health and Tropical Medicine, where she teaches topics in health and human rights. In the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina, Dr. Nogi developed ad hoc clinics throughout the city and advocated for the expansion of clinics away from the centralized MCLNO model to community-based clinics. Following residency, she completed the Piper Fellowship in Internal Medicine with a focus on pediatric malnutrition and community health worker training in India. Dr. Niyogi has continued her work in global health with clinical and educational experiences in Ghana, Uganda, Jamaica, Ethiopia, and most recently with Central America refugees in Mexico and Syrian and many more. Dr. Niyogi is one of the founders and co-directors of the Resident Initiative in Global Health at Tulane. She is also one of the only medical school faculty selected for the Phyllis T. Taylor Center of Social Innovation and Design Thinking at Tulane. Dr. Yogi, thank you so much. Um, I've had the pleasure to work with you. You've came to um, lecture us many a times, which we've also and always have loved and appreciated. Um, so I thank you for taking the time out of your day to come and educate our listeners a little bit more um, on incarceration health and all that your experience entails. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your medical background and how you got involved with incarceration health? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Jordan, for, for having me. This is a topic that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, and I just really appreciate the opportunity to have, you know, conversations around this. So I, um, in all of that bio, you know, one of the things that, um, that probably I should mention is that I, um, as my, my job as an academic hospitalist at, at UMC, before UMC, it was international, uh, uh, interim Louisiana, a hospital, and before that was Charity Hospital, but all of these hospitals are contract hospitals with Department of Corrections. And so what that means is that the, the Department of Corrections has its own prisons, and within those prisons, they have healthcare facilities. Um, some of those are pretty robust, like a couple of the facilities, actually one of the facilities has an ICU within its own prison system. Others have, you know, pretty large medical wards as well. And so whenever there's someone who requires a higher level of medical care than what's able to be provided by the prison, they're usually sent to one of these, um, one of the contract hospitals. So, so I have always taken care of people who are incarcerated. 
um, for many, many years. And one day I had a medical student, we had walked out of a patient's room who is, um, was incarcerated and a student asked a very astute question and said, well, what happens when people are released? And honestly, I hadn't thought about incarceration and I certainly hadn't thought about release um, and hadn't thought about medical needs or really what any of that meant. Um, and so I looked it up and it turned out that the answer was actually nothing. So people were released from, you know, one of the things that's important to remember is that 95% of people who are incarcerated do get released and they get released back into the communities. And so it's really important for us to remember that community health and health care of people in prisons and jails are intricately tied. Um, and so, you know, when I looked up what happened when people got released and particularly around medical needs, the answer was really th there wasn't anything. $10 at that time, it was a check, which is really difficult to deposit if you have no ID and nowhere, no bank account, you know, um, and then usually just a bus ticket that dropped you off at any time of the night. When you get released, you just get released. And if they decide that it's 2 a.m. and you get released, that's when you get released. And so it's really a pretty big barrier to sort of, you know, what do you do as soon as you're, you're kind of coming back out? There's no, no systems in place for medical needs as well. Um, and so I started the formal incarcerated transitions clinic or the fit clinic program, which serves to, to meet that unmet need of, you know, connecting people when they're coming out of incarceration with medical services into the community. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about, I guess, the services in your experience, I guess, is what you've learned throughout the many years um, with the fit clinic, as far as like the needs of that community, um, maybe things that you didn't know that were a surprise to you in the beginning. Um, you know, anything that can kind of help us think of things differently when we're seeing patients in the emergency department who may have just recently been released. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So when I started the, the FIT clinic, one of the things that I realized, if someone had been uh, given a prescription um, and they tried to fill that prescription, oftentimes that prescription wasn't valid. And what I learned was that two thirds of the doctors who work in the Louisiana prison system have their own um, felony convictions and have license license restrictions on their medical license. And so their NPI, you know, their national provider number isn't, uh, may not be valid on the outside. And there's some medications that may not be able to be filled. And so when I started the clinic, I thought very naively, oh, well, that's simple. Just send them to me. I'll rewrite a prescription with a valid license and then we'll be done and reentry healthcare will, will have been solved. And um, that was very naive. You know, what I learned at that time was just the incredible uh, disarray um, mm -hmm. that happens when someone is leaving incarceration. I mean, you know, if we think about the whole sort of life trajectory, if we're thinking about who is more likely to be incarcerated, right, we start with that. We know statistics of, you know, racial disparities around incarceration. Um, nationally, and then also in our state, Louisiana, we have, you know, two thirds of the population of Louisiana is white, um, but makes up one third of the incarcerated population and then reverse one third is black, but makes up two thirds of the population and that follows sort of national trends. But we also know that educational backgrounds, socioeconomic statuses, all of those things are contributors to incarceration. And then one of the most important things I think for everyone to remember is that everyone who is incarcerated, particularly women who are incarcerated, all have histories of trauma, whether that's physical trauma, sexual violence, mental 
health, psychological trauma, but everyone's coming in with the background of trauma. And then once you're incarcerated, there's the, the trauma of incarceration itself, including traumatic medical care. Um, and we can talk about that a little bit more um, in, in this conversation. And so when people return, you know, they're coming from these areas of unmet traumatic and mental health needs. And then we talk about all of these sort of collateral consequences and ways in which the communities and societies continue to exert control over people who are formally incarcerated. And that's through things like, you know, what federal programs do they have eligibility to? So, you know, once you are released, having that felony conviction can prevent you from getting a job, can prevent you from getting housing, could prevent you from living with someone who's dependent on subsidized housing. There's a whole list of legal ramifications that you have to deal with. And so when you're released and you're told, hey, you know, congratulations, you said, I have a big smile on your face, go out, get a job and, you know, maintain and sort of take over, you start off where you left off. Um, it's very difficult to do. Right. And so a lot of the work that we do, actually, the medical part of it is actually the easiest part, you know, writing a prescription, controlling someone's hypertension and diabetes. Oftentimes we know that that part is, is, is simpler, but it's really these whole, the so, you know, we call them the social determinants of health. I would call them also the political de determinants of health that are all influencing how, what, what kind of care um, are people getting while they're in and out. Right. So, I mean, we know, of course, and, you know, you've laid a lot of the framework um, as far as like the social determinants or what I like to call now drivers. And I think it's starting to become like the new coined term of how we're kind of like starting to shift to talk about these um, things. But specifically, you mentioned some of them. I mean, economic stability. I know you mentioned like the federal like laws or um, red lines that may affect um, patients getting plugged in right with the right resources to be able to kind of assimilate back into the community in the correct ways. Um, what do you think are some of the biggest or largest factors um, or like social drivers of health that impact or contribute to a patient's risk for incarceration? Just taking it all the way back, I guess, to the, to the beginning, even before, um, you know, the patients enter the system. I mean, I think that all of those things that, that you mentioned, definitely, you know, I mean, if you think about areas in which zip codes that have more people that are incarcerated, right? If you think about what those zip codes are, there generally tends to be racial disparities. There tends to be lower socioeconomic statuses. There tends to be, I mean, these are all intentional. We have to remember that everything that we are creating in this is a very intentional you know, even if we're not using the word segregation anymore, we are, you know, still living in these in these areas where, where communities are very intentionally created. And so, you know, increased policing in particular neighborhoods, um, all of those things sort of contribute to that increase, um, to the increased risk of incarceration. I'm going to come back again because I think it's really important for people to recognize the trauma um, that, that people are carrying. And that trauma comes from those neighborhoods, right? Like, I mean, it comes from, if you're living in areas that are highly policed, if you're living in areas that have more risk of violence, if you're living in areas where, you know, your educational opportunities may not be as robust, all of those things 
are traumatic experiences. You know, we also know that adverse childhood events, there's lots and lots of data now coming out about how that links with increased risk for incarceration. And if you think about these, you know, adverse childhood events, they come from those neighborhoods and incarceration itself is so if you have a parent who's incarcerated that's an adverse childhood event and so how these things continue to get cycled over and over and over again um you know a lot of people who once they get released are returning to those same neighborhoods and so if you're thinking about well someone's at the start of you know maybe the incarceration cycle but people who are around them maybe at different phases of the incarceration life cycle we know that there are there's much greater housing insecurity there's a huge wage difference so if you look at you know some recent data came out that for someone who has never been incarcerated they you can expect that they will make $40,000 a year more than yeah. someone with a history of incarceration and so you know there's the whole movement the the ban the box movement which says you can't ask about a criminal uh, criminal history on a background for an application for a job. All of these things are because we know that they are barriers to people getting employment. And so when you think now, okay, someone's been incarcerated, they return to their neighborhood, they return to their community. Here's all of these limitations that they have, housing limitations. So lots of housing security. And I'm not saying unhoused, but people right. are moving around from place to place. And so, you know, if you've been incarcerated for 30 years, you come home to your community, but you don't necessarily have all of those community societal and family ties that you had before. Again, intentional, right? Prisons are far away from urban areas. The cost of making a phone call from prison is exorbitant and prohibitive. It's very difficult for people to make a three-hour trip out to a prison to see somebody, you know, and so all of these things dismantle those community and, and family ties. And so when people are coming home, they're, they're staying in these temporary housing situations, which in itself can be stressful, both to the person who's returning and also to the family members who now suddenly have an additional person in the house. You know, there is the institutionalization and trauma of incarceration that oftentimes families of people who are incarcerated have a very difficult time understanding and that can cause strife as well. And so then these things just propagate and they continue in this in this cycle, that income disparity, that wage disparity, then, you know, continues on to the children, you know, um, I think that's the other thing that I really want to make sure that we highlight is that when we think about incarceration, we're not thinking about individuals. Mm -hmm. So a person goes away, but who gets affected is the entire family and the entire community. You mentioned before um, that traumatic I guess, medical care and component. Um, just, I, I mean, I guess before we go into that, to backtrack a little bit more, a lot of individuals or our listeners may not know like the difference between prison and jail. I was wondering if you could just go into that a little bit more. And then, you know, when we're taking care of patients, I think in the beginning of my training, a lot of times I would question like, man, why did, you know, this injury or this has been going on, you're telling me for months, right? And you're just getting to me now um, you know, like what's going on, <laughs> right? In right. the systems. Um, why did it take this person so long to get here? They're so sick, they're so ill, or they're showing signs of maybe cancer, like three months ago, six months ago, right? And they're just showing up to my doorstep. And, you know, a lot of times you feel at loss because you're like, I could have intervened or, you know, the system could have intervened so much sooner and could have like 
changed completely, you know, that person's, um, you know, trajectory. Their medical trajectory. Right, yeah. right. So, I mean, I guess help our listeners, I guess, understand that a little bit more too, um, mm -hmm. as far as like what's actually going on in the background, as far as them seeking medical care and thus the trauma that comes from that. And yeah. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that is a really important question to clarify about the distinction between jail and prison. So we'll start with that. Mm -hmm. um, jails are for people who are sentenced for less than a year or for people who are awaiting trial. And so you get booked, you get charged, and then you're awaiting your trial, right? And so these people are innocent until proven guilty. Um, and national average about 65 to 85% of people who are in jails are pre-trial, which means they have not had their trial yet. Um, jails are under the jurisdiction of the county and the sheriff's office. And because majority of the people are either pre-trial or are there for less than a year, medical services within a jail tend to tend to be pretty thin. Um, and so, you know, they're not set up with this anticipation that you're going to have people there long term with chronic conditions and to think about all of these sort of uh, things that prisons may think about, um, like having to provide for primary care and for diagnostics. Jails are really kind of set up more as urgent care areas. And again, because they're under the jurisdiction of the county and the sheriff's office, each jail can be can widely vary in what services they have available. So someone may be able to do emergency care in their jail. Another sheriff's office may have someone on call, you know, and and have to send out any emergency that happens. Um, the number of jails. So in Louisiana, we have 103 jails. And so just people so that people understand how many facilities we're talking about. Um, and so when you're thinking about someone coming to see you, it's kind of important to know, you know, are you, are you going back to a jail or prison setting? The prisons are different. So prisons are for people who have longer sentences. They're under the jurisdiction of either the state or the federal government. Um, federal, there are a few federal prisons, and sometimes you may have federal people who are under federal custody housed at um, a prison set, you know, within a state prison. Um, but the jurisdiction really comes from either the state or federal government. What that means, because people are in prisons for a longer period of time, the health care that people have to think about um, is for people that are, that are going to be there for longer. We have an aging population. I think everyone, we didn't even talk about the crisis of, of mass incarceration, right? There's 2.3 million people who are incarcerated in, in the US currently and one in 32 Americans is involved with the criminal legal system. So it's a really huge issue um, because of things like um, uh, three strikes you're out and mandatory minimums, we have these really long, lengthy sentences. And so that's contributing to people being in prison for a lot longer period of time, but also this aging population of people who's in prison. And so we know that people who are incarcerated are sicker than people who are out in the general population that have higher chronic diseases, that have higher infectious diseases. We saw that during COVID, they have higher mental health illnesses. And so when you're in, you know, so 
So prison healthcare really has to think about that. That epidemiology is different because you have a larger, you have a group of people there for longer, older with more chronic conditions. And so that's really kind of what, what prisons are thinking about. And that's why they have their own, you know, hospitals within, within the prisons. Um, the ways in which, so jail healthcare is again, really, I, I am having these conversations a lot with people as we're trying to rethink about our own jail and the healthcare at our own jail. Um, I think people are really shocked when I say there's really no overarching guidelines for how to deliver jail healthcare. It's, it's just all over the place. Mm -hmm. um, and so how people access healthcare at the jail is really going to be based on where you are. So at our jail, generally, you know, there's sort of a sick call process, but a lot of it is just maybe another person who is a resident at that jail says, hey, you know, knocks on the window for the guard and says, this person's sick, somebody needs to get seen. And so it may really come down to just that, is that people that are within that same facility are sort of looking out for each other and, and alerting them for medical needs. In the prison setting, um, it's a little bit different. In the prison setting, you have, if you have a chronic condition, you, you are uh, seen in the chronic care clinics. And that's where your diabetes, your hypertension, all of those things are supposed to be managed. If you get sick in the prison setting, you do what's called a sick call. The sick call is uh, the first person who sees a sick call is an EMT, um, and the EMT will review the sick call and decide whether or not they feel that that sick call, that whether or not they feel that that complaint is valid enough to be seen by a higher level of provider. And that higher level of provider could be just the RN, um, not just that, but it could be the RN. Um, you know, or, or maybe a medical provider, depending on what the EMT says. But a lot of times, you know, the EMTs will say, oh, you're complaining of back pain. You just want to get out of work. So, you know, I don't take some Tylenol. We'll talk a little bit more about what that, what the implications for some of that, you're just trying to get out of work mean. <laughs> sick calls, <laughs> sick calls are, um, you have to pay for them. Mm -hmm. So there's a, a copay from three to five dollars. You know, again, it, it depends on the state. But if you're thinking about what people who are incarcerated, the wages that they're earning, they're four cents, right? So you're making four cents an hour. And if your copay is three dollars and the copay generally tends to be per complaint. And so if you are if you have a headache and, an, and a stomach ache and you want to talk about both, that's actually $6. Wait, and so it's really cost prohibitive for people to do it. Um, if people don't have the money, they'll take it out of commissary. So commissary is oftentimes what people on the outside will help their friends, family, whoever um, maintain some sort of a semblance of regularity. You know, it's, it's money that kind of goes into your account and you get to go to the commissary and choose the items that you want. And it's really kind of a um, sad, but luxurious, you know, luxury for people. 
you have so many um, rights taken away, you know, hmm? <laughs> like so, I say, when you have so many rights taken away, like on a daily basis, you know, that seems probably like they're a kid in a candy store at that point. You yeah, know? exactly. You know, I mean, there's such little choice that, right. that people who are incarcerated have. And so it is this luxury to be able to go and to make a choice and to, to, to get the things that you, that you want. Um, but if you get sick, you know, and you can't pay it, they're going to take it out of your commissary. And so your family may have given you that commissary to make phone calls and stay in touch with people, mm -hmm. right? You can, you can do, you use your commissary money for that. And now they're taking it because of the, of, of sick call. So that's usually prohibitive. The EMTs, uh, you know, like I said, EMTs will triage to see who uh, advances um, with their medical complaints. And then there's a whole, like when we talk about medicine on the outside, you know, as we go through and our medical education, we've always learned that malingering is the last diagnosis, right? It's a diagnosis of exclusion. We have gone through oftentimes an exhaustive process to right. sort of figure out what are other physical, you know, or other ailments that may be, that may be the cause of the complaint. Oftentimes in prisons, it's the opposite. Malingering is the first diagnosis. Um, and if you are found, if you if they think that you're malingering, then there are punitive measures attached to it. So those punitive measures may be something like your commissary is shut down for a week. It could be that you lose your visitation rights. You know, if you think about it, if you've got say your aunt's been planning for six months to come and see you in prison and she's, you know, gotten it together to buy her bus ticket, take time off of work, travel those three hours, you know, all of the things that are required even to make this trip. I don't think we think about what that means for most families. Like to go and make a trip is really, it's a lot, <laughs> it's a lot, you know, and if you've got kids, I mean, I got a kid and I don't know what, I, you know, my kid's not right. going to sit on the bus for <laughs> three hours. Like, yeah, you know, so you have to all of that stuff. And so then if, if you have a complaint and you say, well, you know what, I'm really worried if I go in, they're going to think that I'm malingering. What if they take away my visitation? My aunt's been working on this for six months to come and see me. I'm just going to not go. Right. And so that is one of the, one of the deferral points of, you know, where we don't see people. But underlying all of that is this notion of why would you think that I'm malingering, right? Right? Like, why would I, so I'm paying you money to come and see you because my back is hurting. And now you think I'm just playing you because I don't want to go work. And now you're going to punish me for that, right? Like this whole system, that's not how medicine works. Um. The other thing that I'm oftentimes told is, you know, if you're um, if you're sick and you make that sick call, you're when the EMT comes out now as medical providers, you know, when when somebody gets sick, our first instinct is to go to the patient and to, you know, hey, hey, are you OK? Take a vital sign, you know, do all of those things in the prison system. The EMTs go to the overseer. They go to the correctional officer, they go to the person, to the safety and security person, not to the patient. Mm -hmm. And they go to the safety and security person and say, hey, do you think that that person's telling the truth? Mm -hmm. You know, um, 
again, that's not for a correctional officer to decide. They are not medically trained to do that. And we're losing valuable time for a patient who may legitimately be ill and need to have, you know, urgent medical attention. Um, and so, you know, back to your question about you're seeing patients that are coming in from incarceration who have advanced levels of disease. This is these are the systems that are keeping those, you know, it's the, oh, you're malingering, you don't want to work response to, to a lot of it. I mean, I remember seeing a patient one time who um, was paralyzed from the waist down. And when I spoke to his family, they said, you know, for about two years, he's been complaining of pain and his back. And, you know, and I talked to the patient and same thing, you know, that he kept telling me, I kept going in and telling him about this pain and they didn't really do anything. It turned out he had metastatic prostate cancer. And by the time we saw him, he had mets through his bone. And, you know, as you know, once you get metastatic prostate cancer, I mean, the, the life expectancy changes pretty significantly. Um, and so, you know, we had to basically tell this man and this family that wasn't much we could do. And he was paralyzed. He had lost the, the, the use of his legs. And it was when he was finally in a wheelchair that someone in medical thought that, oh, there might actually be something medical or physical happening and should be evaluated and sent him for imaging. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I think it's those, it's really those, those, uh, that approach right. that gets really, um, really difficult. You know, people will tell me that are incarcerated. There's a lot of sense. There's a lot of distrust of the medical system in, in amongst people who are incarcerated. This is the trauma of the healthcare provision incarceration I talk about. And that's important for us to remember on the outside, because people are bringing that trauma into your medical facilities as well. And so we need to remember and recognize that. Um, but, you know, the, it's important for people to know that two things. One, medical care in jails and prisons is within the budget of the sheriff's office or the Department of Corrections or the federal government. So it's not, whereas, you know, in the outside world, we rely on insurance and Medicaid. There is a very specific Medicaid exclusion policy um, that was started in the 70s, when, or sorry, in the 50s with Medicare and Medicaid. And so people who are incarcerated cannot access Medicaid dollars um, in the jail or prison. Um, and and so whatever budget that you have for the provision of health care, you're limited to that to that budget. And so a lot of people who are incarcerated will tell me, you know, well, they just don't want to pay for it. They don't have enough money um, if they diagnose me, then they're going to have to, you know, pay for my treatment. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's one of the, the issues um, that leads to the, to the distrust that people have in the system. We thank you so much for joining us for part one of our Social Empower episode on disparities in incarceration health that we're doing jointly with the JEDI section of AAEM. We hope that you join us for part two, where we discuss things we can do in everyday practice to be impactful with our incarcerated patient population.